Is the Ark of the Covenant in Ethiopia? And the battle for Jerusalem and the temple, Mount Rages on. And it is critical to understand the past, present, and future of the world's most disputed piece of real estate. For this is the issue that will ignite the battle of Armageddon. And we will analyze these events on this edition of End of the Age. Good afternoon, everybody. I'm Dave Robbins with End Time Ministries. Thank you so much for joining me on this edition of End of the Age. And there are so many news topics right now involving Bible prophecy. Honestly, when I do a program, me, Doug, and Vince, I really have to just pick the top ones. I, there's no way we can cover it all, folks. I mean, we need to have two or three magazines and um, a couple different television programs. I mean, in several people on the radio, it's just bombarding us. We're doing the best we can, and I want to. Th- I'm thankful for Doug and Vince that helped me out. Uh, they're doing a me a, a, a great service, and uh, very thankful for them. And so, let's dive off into it and get as much as we can done today, right? When you talk about the Ark of the Covenant, how much do you know about that? Most people, or I shouldn't say most people, but a lot of people, they hear about these news stories and they're like, I don't even know the Ark of the Covenant. I know it says to do something with the original temple and tabernacle plans. What's the gist of this whole thing? And when I said something about, is the Ark of the Covenant in Egypt? You don't even know where the Ark of the Covenant maybe went, right? I mean, what, what, why isn't it in Israel? Well, I want to get off into some of this today, and I'm going to go back to some history because it's impossible for me to explain the Ark of the Covenant unless we go through some history, you understand what it is, then we'll talk about it, and then I'll get into the, uh, what's going on with the Temple Mount and everything. So you understand, once Israel had come out of Egyptian bondage, This would be back in uh, Exodus. We're going to go to probably chapter 25, um, 8 through through 22. The Bible says, And let them make me a sanctuary. This is the Lord talking to Moses. Let them make me a sanctuary. In, In the early part of the chapter, they had just taken up an offering. Hey, have them bring the gold and silver and this, that, and the other. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. Now remember, they've come out of the exodus out of Egypt, and they're out in the wilderness now. So they need a plan of salvation. God's going to give them a type and shadow of the plan of salvation that would come once he came and died for us. And so this is what he's doing, the tabernacle plan. So he said, let them make a tabernacle that I may dwell with them. According to all that I show you, Moses, don't change one thing. 
after the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all the instruments thereof, even so shall ye make it. And they shall make an ark of chittim wood, two cubits and a half shall be the length thereof, and a cubit and a half the breadth thereof, and a cubit and a half the height thereof. And thou shalt overlay it with pure gold, Within and without shalt thou overlay it, and thou shalt make it a crown of gold round about. And thou shalt put the mercy seat above, upon the ark, and in the ark thou shalt put the testimony that I shall give thee. And there I will meet thee, and I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubims which are upon the ark of the testimony, of all the things which I will give thee in commandment unto the children of Israel. Now, this is when God gave Moses the plans to the tabernacle, the um, instruments that were supposed to be used, the different uh, pieces of furniture. And this was going to be the plan of salvation. In the Old Testament, it would eventually become the temple built up on the Temple Mount, and then eventually this was a type and shadow of things to come in the New Testament. Today we have the reality, the Old Testament was a type and shadow of things to come today. When Jesus Christ would come, die on the cross, and purchase our plan of salvation that we adhere to today. Now, so let's look at the furniture really quick in the tabernacle plan the pattern of which God came to Moses and gave him. And he said to do exactly this way. Don't leave out one piece of furniture. Don't move it over two feet this way or two feet that way. When I tell you to build something, you build it exactly how I tell you. Don't leave one piece out. And this is a type and shadow of the New Testament plan of salvation where you can't leave one thing out. It's very, very important that we do all of the steps to salvation. It's what the tabernacle plan was telling us. So the Lord was very detailed when he laid out the tabernacle plan. So first of all, you have the brazen altar. If you look at a plan of the tabernacle, the furniture was shaped in a cross. And so you have the brazen altar, and that's where the blood was shed. Blood had to be shed for the atonement for sin. That's where the animals were killed. The blood was shed, and then the blood was taken from the animal, it was collected, and it was put in this, in like a basin, which the priest would then carry with him as he continued through the different steps of the tabernacle. The second step of the tabernacle was the, the second piece of furniture was the brazen laver. And that's where the priest would, were, were to wash before they went into the holy place. So you have the, the, the blood at the brazen altar. You have the water at the brazen laver. And the instruction was given to wash lest you die. So it's very important to have water involved. And these two pieces, in the out, they were in the outer court. They were overlaid with brass. After the priests wash at the laver, now they move through the veil into the holy place. It's the first room in the tabernacle. When they went through the veil, 
they moved into a different spiritual dimension. Again, these are types and shadows of things to come in the New Testament where we have the true reality. So they moved into really a spiritual different dimension and everything inside was overlaid with gold. And so, well, okay, so I'm going to come up to a break here. I want to make sure that um, you guys get this because you need to understand these as we go through when we talk about the altar and the temple and the tabernacle and everything that's going to follow the rest of the program. So I'll hold right here, but I want to say thank you for joining me. We had a great conference this weekend here in Garland. Thank you all that showed up for that. It was great and got a brand new lesson we're teaching this year. So we'll be all over the United States teaching this lesson. Hi, I'm Judy Baxter. When Irvin and I got married, we didn't realize that our calling would be a prophetic ministry. Since we started End Time Ministries, there have been many times we weren't sure how we would pay the bills. But God has always provided. We started with the magazine, then went on radio and TV. And now we have the Jerusalem Prophecy College in Israel and online and End of the Age Plus. The mission has always been to reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ and the End Time Message. Through the years, my husband would say, we will see revival like never before in the last days. We are living in the end time now. Thank you for walking this journey with us and continuing in prayer. You are a part of the team. Thank you for your generous support. It is necessary for God's purpose. The most important thing is that you are ready when the Lord comes. Our hope is to help prepare you for that day. God bless you and we love you. Major internet companies are silencing and censoring Christian voices online. These companies are trying to control what you see and hear. Almost 200 videos of ours have been marked as restricted online right now. That's why we launched End of the Age Plus, a platform where the truth won't be censored, a platform where we can preach the message of the gospel. When you subscribe to End of the Age Plus today for just $12.99 a month, you can watch all of our content in a secure, easy-to-view way from your favorite device. When you go to watch.endtime.com and subscribe, you'll get instant access to all of our teaching resources, including Revelation, the Unveiling of Jesus Christ, Understanding the End Time, End Time Magazine, and so much more. We will not censor our message to comply with what the world deems as politically correct. Go to watch.endtime.com right now or search End of the Age Plus in the App Store or Google Play. So in the tabernacle plan, and uh, when Israel had come out of Egypt into, uh, into the wilderness, now they need a plan of salvation, right? So they have the brazen altar. Animal is killed. The blood is shed and collected. The priest washes at the labor, goes through the first veil into the holy place. The first thing they did in the holy place was to take fire off of the altar with them and they would use it to, um, in order to light the candlestick, the seven candelabra in the holy place. The candlestick was made up of the seven candelabra and plus there were oil containers that fed the wicks. And when the priest went there, he would light the candles and they would burn so that they could have light to see to minister in the holy place. There were no doors, there were no windows inside the holy place. 
But it's interesting that everything was overlaid with gold. It's a very key point. The Bible talks about how that when we are a carnal-minded, again, those were physical types and shadows of spiritual realities we have now. So when we're carnally-minded, the Bible says we're like a sounding brass and a tinkling cymbal. Remember? But when you move into God's presence, that's when you move into where the golden vessel is, the gold is, where the Spirit of God flows, where it's rich and where it's real and where it's wonderful. Okay? This is the progression here. So once the candlesticks were lit, there were two other pieces of furniture in the holy place. The the two pieces of furniture um, was the, uh, number one, the altar of incense in the center there. And there was then a table of showbread over the, um, at the side. So you can see that everything um, in this furniture is shaped in the, sh- in the uh, shape of a cross. And it's as though the pattern was in heaven and the light shined down on the earth and gave them the shadow. You understand? Types and shadows of things to come. The Bible says those things were only those types and shadows of New Testament realities. So what's the altar of incense all about? Well, that's the type of praise and worship. The table of showbread was the word of God. And so the Bible teaches us that they worship the Father. They that worship the Father must worship Him in spirit and in truth, right? The altar of the incense, with the incense going up continually, that was a type of the spirit experience, praise and worship. And then the table of shewbread was a type of God's word, spirit and truth. Everything that you ever know about Jesus Christ, you will learn through spirit and truth. Praying, praise and worshiping God, praying in the spirit, and then studying the word of God. That's how you get to know God. That's why biblical illiteracy is such a travesty in our society, really. It's hard to know God without knowing the Bible. And so Jesus told the woman at the well uh, of Samaria, you remember, he said, they that worship the Father must worship him in what? Spirit and in truth. And then finally, the Bible says, God is a spirit. They that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So, And then, finally, we go through a second veil to the Ark of the Covenant. And this is where God's presence was concentrated, right? And when the covering of the Ark, the covering of the Ark of the Covenant was the mercy seat. And that's where the priest would sprinkle blood all over the mercy seat. God would come down and atone the blood, the the entire ritual that would atone atone for the, the sins of Israel. So the Ark of the Covenant, very, very important piece of the plan of salvation at that time. A type and shadow of things to come, right? So that's the Ark of the Covenant. Now, the tablet, it's a news source, they reported a while back that um, they asked the question, is the Ark of the Covenant in Ethiopia? Because, and I'll give you some history here, that 
the Ark of the Covenant has not been seen in several thousand years. There was originally an Ark of the Covenant. A lot of people think they know where it is today, but they don't. And I know the people at the Jewish, the, the, um, the Temple Institute, uh, many of the rabbis there, and the, a lot of people that say, well, hey, they know, everybody knows where it's at. They don't. You know, and then it just seems like every two, three, four, five years, you can read an article in a newspaper or watch a, a report on TV or YouTube or something like that, that, hey, the Ark of the Covenant, this, this sacred object of the ancient Hebrews, uh, roughly modeled on the, this Egyptian bark that transported souls into the afterlife and things like that. Now, this is the article here, folks. It's kept somewhere in Ethiopia where it has resided there for the past 3,000 years. Well, actually, it's not. <laughs> but they're talking about it, and a lot of people are wrapped up in all of this. So, the, you know, where is it? Well, today, this article states that every Ethiopian church is built according to the same tripartite model in the center of the, of the original tabernacle. Or the temple, there is the Holy of Holies, where the replica, and I say the word replica of the Ark of the Covenant is kept. Only priests are allowed into that part. This is in Ethiopia now. And then there is the holy place. They consider the holy place, where communion is given, and then the outer space. Um, and then there, it's you know modulated poetry, they say, where... The scribes acting as Levites chant praises and worship. It's them really trying to imitate the original temple and tabernacle plan. And they say, as such, the structure of the church is modeled on the, just like it is on the, uh, the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. The Ark of the Covenant, they say, whose replicas are kept in every Ethiopian church, is said to be in Axum. A-K-S-U-M, in the head of the church of the churches, the Holy of Holies, and they say the Virgin Mary of Zion. I do not believe it's there. They say it's there. There, they say, a priest appointed for life watches over the holy receptacle. He is not permitted to leave the, prim- the precincts, and he appoints his own deputy while, he, while still in life. And no one, not even the head of the Ethiopian church, the supposedly called the Abuna, is allowed to see this supposed ark. And the article says the last, the likely last non-Ethiopian person who saw the Ark of Axum was the most important Ethiopiologist, that is a word, believe it or not, of the 20th century, Edward Ollendorf. He lived from 1920 to 2011. He was a Christian from Zurich. In 1941, while he was a British officer, Ollendorf had a rare chance to examine this ark that they say is the Ark of the Covenant, kept in Axum. And in an interview with the, the LA Times in 1992, he said this flatly. He said, hey, I was allowed to see it. He said, there was no problem getting access when I saw it in 1941. He said, you do need to be able to speak their language. But he said, all they had was a wooden box. And he said, but it's empty. 
And he said it was like um, a, a middle to late mid, uh, medieval construction. And that's what it was when they were fabricated as needed back then. So, no, I do not believe that the Ark of the Covenant is in Ethiopia. But every so often, you'll hear somebody say, we've got the Ark of the Covenant here. They found the Ark of the Covenant over here. And so, I wanted to talk about that because we've had the question so many times, what about the Ark of the Covenant? Is it in the Temple Mount? Where is it at? Da-da-da. So, in, in Revelation chapter eleven nineteen. John saw the ark of his testament. Now remember this. This is right here at the culmination at the second coming. He's seeing a vision of heaven. This is right after the seventh trumpet. Or right at the seventh trumpet. And so this lets us know, Revelation 11, 19, that there will be some type of an ark in heaven. Whether that means the ark of the covenant is in heaven or not, I don't know the answer to that. However, we do know that during the millennium, the Ark of the Covenant will not be on the earth. Jeremiah 3.16 says, And it shall come to pass, when ye be multiplied and increased in the land, in those days, saith the Lord, they shall say no more the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. Neither shall it come to mind, neither shall they remember it, neither shall they visit it, neither shall that be done anymore. So it's very important that we understand these things because people get so wrapped up in, there are people that have devoted much of their lives to finding the Ark of the Covenant. When really what we should be doing is preaching and teaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? And there are books, there are videos. You can go to YouTube and watch till your eyeballs fall out on this stuff. But I want to make sure that I'm not looking for the Ark of the Covenant. I do not need the Ark of the Covenant. Because our end-time team prayed and had devotions this morning from 8 to 9. And I talked to the God who actually met them at the mercy seat in the Old Testament. He met us today in our prayer meeting and mercy was extended and there was no Ark of the Covenant. So because they had types and shadows of New Testament realities that would come. So don't get all caught up in looking for the Ark of the Covenant or trying to figure where it's it's at. Look for Jesus and find Him and know Him because He is the one That's going to save you. He's the one that died for you on Calvary. I don't need a wooden box, a brazen box, a gold box to get me to heaven. And you're saying, but Dave, I just want to know about these things. To me, I'm too busy. I'm looking for the soon return of Jesus Christ. And honestly, I really don't ever care if I see an ark in heaven or not. I want to spend billions of years worshiping and praising the one who died for me and gave me the opportunity to spend eternity with him. That's who I'm looking for. Now, yes, it's, it's interesting to talk about it, but don't, I don't believe they're ever going to find the Ark of the Covenant. And we especially know it won't be here during the millennial reign. So 
Uh, just want to make mention of that because a lot of people get wrapped up in a lot of that stuff. Look, I'm not looking for any physical anything. I'm looking for Jesus Christ. Lord, I want to know you more. I want to worship you and praise you. And I'm going to spend eternity with you. And I talked to him this morning. And so it was awesome. I don't need to go through the rituals and all these different things to touch the Lord. You can touch him in your car while you're driving. You can touch him in your prayer room at home. Go shut yourself away. Talk to him. And he will be there to meet your needs, folks. So it's very, very important. I'm preaching Jesus Christ. I'm preaching and teaching the gospel of the kingdom of God because that's our plan of salvation. Okay? Now, the battle to tie in with this, the battle for the Temple Mount is on, folks. The Jerusalem Post, you know, you know the international community, they are very anti-Semitic. When I say the international community, I'm talking about the United Nations. And anti-Semitism is rising around the world. The United Nations is very anti-Semitic. So the United Nations, the General Assembly, they approved recently a resolution, 129 to 11, that disavowed Jewish ties to the Temple Mount. Now think about this. And called it solely by its Muslim name, Al-Haram Al-Sharif. The text referred to as the Jerusalem Resolution, is part of a push by the Palestinian Authority and the Arab states across the United Nations system to rebrand Judaism's most holy site as an exclusively Islamic one. And that's why when you need to read articles like this, you need to know the past, present, and future of these issues to be able to tell people that's not true. What they're telling us in the news media and things like this about Israel, it's simply not true. The Bible says, you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. So we don't want to be against Israel. The United Nations would like the United States to be against Israel. But you don't want to be. The Bible says, I will bless them that bless you and I will curse them that curse you. We've got to stand with Israel all the way to the end, folks. So I don't want you to be swayed by the the liberal news media that's trying to push their agendas of this world governing body. We need to make sure we know the truth. We're preaching and teaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and we are going to stand with Israel all the way to the end. The international community would like to paint Israel as an apartheid state and in a bad light. You do not want to get that thinking in your mind. We love Israel. I love the people of Israel. We have close ties with many, many, many people in Israel. And I want to see them saved before the second coming of Jesus Christ. The ones that aren't already saved. And I want to see everybody, not just Israel, but everybody around the world. That's why we're teaching and preaching the gospel of the God all the way around. Whether it's a global pandemic, (laughs) threat of war, or floundering economies, end time events are happening around the world every day. How can you have peace in a world of such great uncertainty? With the End Time Magazine subscription, you can gain a deeper understanding of current events and its prophesied repercussions. End Time Magazine's exclusive content and prophetic insight allows you to understand where we are in the end time. 
It will give you peace when horrific news and events happen. When you subscribe today to End Time Magazine for 12 months for just $19.99, you can have hope for the future because you will understand what the Bible says about the time we are living in. You'll get access to exclusive articles like the Prophesied American-Israeli Alliance, End Time Do's and Don'ts, and Could School Choice Save America? Subscribe for you or a friend right now. Go to endtime.com or call 1-800-END-TIME. That's 1-800-END-TIME. The symbols and prophecies within the book of Revelation have perplexed Christians and unbelievers around the world. In his final work, Revelation, The Unveiling of Jesus Christ Part 2. The late Irvin Baxter unlocks the mystery of the book of Revelation with in-depth analysis and commentary like you've never heard before. These comprehensive study tools, available for $299, will deepen your biblical understanding. Don't miss this special offer. Call 1-800-END-TIME or go to endtime.com. If your station only carries the first 30 minutes of End of the Age, go to endtime.com and click the watch button to continue today's broadcast. You can also finish up later by clicking the archive button. So there's this huge battle for Jerusalem and the Temple Mount that has been raging for thousands of years. And it's not going to stop until the Battle of Armageddon and Jesus Christ comes back to set the record straight. And it's raging on as we speak. Times of Israel. So the international community against Israel. The Times of Israel has actually said that Mahmoud Abbas, who recently met Israel Foreign Minister Benny Gantz, at the meeting he warned Gantz that, hey, changes on the Temple Mount could lead to unstoppable violence. Well, what's he talking about? Well, the report didn't give details on what changes that Abbas was concerned about. However, in recent months, there have been reports that Israel was quietly being allowed to go up and pray at the Temple Mount. And, of course, that would appear to be a major change in the status quo, right? That the Muslim waqf has control of the Temple Mount. But people have been allowing many Jews, like record number of Jews, to go up there and pray at the holy site. So the status quo, it's existed since the holy site, um, the, since the Jewish state captured the old city of Jerusalem from Jordan back in the 67 Six Days War. And there are also those that are preaching temple denialism because they want to remove Israel's, any kind of a claim that they have to any of that region. So if they can remove Israel's claim to Jerusalem and the Temple Mount, then they think, hey, in the eyes of the international community, Israel maybe not should not have had that uh, country and maybe they'll move them out or go against them claim that they're a, a, an apartheid state and start hammering down on them. They're hammering down on them already. But they want to do anything they can to make it so that Israel doesn't have any claim to that land. That's why the Temple Mount in Jerusalem is the most disputed property on the planet. The 35 acres of the Temple Mount is the most disputed real estate on the entire earth. There's no price that you could put on that to purchase that from them. No price. They're willing to die for that. So, the Battle of Armageddon. 
is all going to come down to Satan against God. Satan is fighting God for Jerusalem and the Temple Mount. There have been 40 major wars fought over the Temple Mount and Jerusalem over the years, more than any other city on the planet. So, the battle for the Temple Mount is on. It's the, again, it's the most hotly disputed 35 acres on the planet. The real estate here in Dallas is going crazy right now. It's a crazy situation. But it's nothing compared to that 35 acres over there. The Jews call the Temple Mount and they claim that it's the holy site on the earth to them. And it is. The Muslims call it, again, Haram al-Sharif, the noble sanctuary, and says that it's their third holiest site behind Medina and Mecca in Saudi Arabia. The Muslims also say that there never was a temple that stood there. And, of course, the Jews point to history, archaeology, the Bible, which all tell the story of the first temple built by Solomon in, um, what was it, 968 B.C.? And it stood until Babylon destroyed it in 586. And sources also tell the story of the second temple that stood there on uh, on the Temple Mount from 516 B.C. to 70 A.D. Jesus prophesied the destruction of the second temple in Matthew 24, 1 through 2. The Bible says Jesus went out and departed from the temple. His disciples came to him to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, you guys see all these things? I'm saying unto you, there shall not be left one stone upon another. It's all coming down. That's not going to be thrown down. So the prophecy of Jesus, of course, it was fulfilled when the Romans, led by General Titus, completely destroyed the temple in 70 AD. So what is there about this place that even today, after all these centuries, has kept this conflict boiling just century after century. It's never really been solved. I'm talking thousands of years. Forty major wars. Well, let me give you a little history. In the Bible, because that's the end all. I mean, I don't care what the history... I do care what the history books say, but the history books are always being rewritten. Go look at some history books that were written 50 years ago and look at the ones that are being written now, 50, 75 years ago. You'll be shocked at how much they're rewriting the history books all the time. But the Bible always remains the same and is the most relevant. God covered the first 2,000 years of human history in the first 11 chapters of the Bible. Genesis 1 through 11. Then he slams on the brakes, devotes the next 12 chapters to the life of one man, Abraham. And, of course, God gave a promise to Abraham, didn't he? He actually gave him two promises. He said, you're going to have a son, and through this son shall be the nation, the nations of the earth will be blessed. So he gave him the promise of a promised son and the promise of a promised seed in his lineage, which would eventually be Jesus Christ. But the land is what I'm going to focus on today. Well, of course, Sarah finally gave birth to a son, didn't she? Isaac. By the time Sarah was uh, 90 years old and Abraham was 100, 
So what an incredible miracle, really, right? I mean, Sarah was beyond childbirth age. She'd already passed the time of life. So it was a miracle. And there was no doubt that this was the promised child, Isaac. The child Isaac began to grow. He was the apple of Abraham's eye. You can only imagine he was God's miracle child. He was the center of his life. God had fulfilled his promise to Abraham and life was good, right? Well, since Abraham was destined to become an example to all who would walk with God and and put their trust in him, in God, one more ultimate test needed to be. And the question that had to be answered was, did Abraham love God more than he loved the blessings that God had bestowed upon him? His son. Was God still first in Abraham's life in spite of his extreme attachment to his son Isaac? Well, of course, the test is recorded in Genesis 22, 1 through 2. The Bible says, now it come to pass after these things that God tested Abraham. And he said, Abraham, Abraham said, here I am I. And he said, take your son, your only son Isaac, who you love, and go to the land of Moriah. Very important, Moriah. We're going to talk about that in a minute. And offer him there as a burnt offering as on one of the mountains, which I will tell you. Not just any mountain, but I'm going to pick the one I want you to, to sacrifice him on. Well, this, this extreme test, obviously, for the man who was to become the father of the faithful... It was not carried out just anywhere. God specifically told Abraham to go to the land of Moriah, perform this ultimate act of obedience on one of the mountains that I'm going to show you. So Moriah was approximately 30 miles to the north of Beersheba, where Abraham lived. And it was quite a journey, obviously, to make on foot, right? 30 miles. But God said this historic event must take place on this specific mountain, that would come to be known as Mount Moriah, which today is the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Now, when Abraham raised the knife over Isaac, God stayed his hand. And he said, now I know that you have withheld nothing from me. And he looked behind him, and Abraham saw a ram that was caught in the horns, by his horns in the thicket, and God had provided a substitute sacrifice and then kept his promise to Abraham. Your promised son, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, through that lineage, I'll give you this land, the promised land. Well, 1,000 years later, after um, Abraham, here comes King David. He captured the city of Jebus from the Jebusites, and he made it the capital of the nation of Israel. And he renamed the city Jerusalem. After this, David decided to um, number the people, even though God had instructed him not to. And because of his disobedience, God sent a mighty plague upon the the people of Israel. It killed 7,000 men. Well, of course, David was just beside himself. He, He cried unto the Lord for mercy, and God sent the prophet Gad to David to tell him what to do um, so that the plague might be stopped. The prophet told David, he said, you go and you build an altar unto the Lord in the threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusite. The threshing floor of Arana just happened to be Mount Moriah, where Abraham had raised the knife over Isaac 1,000 years before. 
It's the same exact spot. So God once again chose the specific site for his special purpose. David purchased the threshing floor of Arana uh, for, um, what, 50 shekels of silver. And it also became the place where Solomon built Israel's first temple in 968 B.C. So, there came a time, um, Solomon's temple stood from 968 B.C. until 586 B.C. And the first temple was destroyed in 586 B.C., and the remainder of Judah was carried away into Babylon to be servants at that time. You remember the 70-year exile? Well, then the, um, the second temple era begins. In 538 B.C., the kingdom of Babylon was overthrown by the Medes and the Persians. That same year, Cyrus, the king of the Persians, made a decree that all Jews wishing to return to Israel were free to go. And he also admonished them to rebuild the house of the great God of Jer- in Jerusalem. So in 536 B.C., many Jews led by Zerubbabel, m- m- many of you know the story, they made their way to Jerusalem and the construction on Israel's second temple began. And of course, after much opposition, the second temple was completed in 516 B.C. The second temple, of course, it was enlarged and made more beautiful by Herod the Great around uh, 20 B.C. And this is the temple that stood on the Temple Mount during the time of Jesus Christ. And it was said of Herod's temple, he that has never seen Herod's temple has never seen a beautiful building in his life. That's the big platform that you see up there today. The platform you see is not the second temple. It's the platform that Herod enlarged that. And so then, then, that be, then comes the, um, the second era. The second um, temple era ends at that point. Of course, after Jesus had been rejected by most of the Jewish people, he wept over Jerusalem and he foretold its destruction. He said this event, um, it was, it's recorded in where? Luke 19, 41 through 44. Bible says, and when he, when he had come near, he beheld the city and he wept over it. And he said, if thou hadst known, even thou, at least in this day, thy day, the things which belong unto thy peace, but now they are hid from thine eyes. For the days shall come upon thee that thine enemies shall cast a trench about thee and compass thee around and keep thee on every side. And they shall lay thee even with the ground and thy children within thee. And they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. And of course, on the other side of the break, we're going to talk about that. What happened in 70 AD? I've been part of the End Time family from the beginning over 30 years ago when my parents, Irvin and Judy Baxter, began the ministry from the recliner in our living room. My name is Jana Robbins. I have the pleasure of connecting with our incredible partners every day. End Time is a small nonprofit that runs a high-traffic website, a daily TV and radio show, the Prophecy College in Jerusalem, and more. Although we have less than 30 team members, we are able to serve tens of millions of people each month. 
We survive on the goodness of God and donations averaging about $50. If everyone hearing this message gave $22, our financial needs would be met for the year. If you only give to one cause per month, please consider partnering with End Time to help get the message of our soon coming King out to the world. Call us at 1-800-END-TIME to give today or go to endtime.com to become a monthly or one-time partner. Now, the prophecy of Jesus concerning the the destruction of the second temple was fulfilled when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD. Just as Jesus said it would be, not one stone of the temple was left upon another. In 132 AD, I really wish I could teach this at the United Nations. Wouldn't that be awesome? In 132 AD, the Jews rebelled against the Roman emperor uh, Hadrian. And in 135, Hadrian's army defeated the Jewish armies and Jewish independence was lost, just like Jesus had prophesied. Jerusalem was turned into a pagan city called Aelia Capitolina, and the Jews were forbidden to live there. Hadrian changed the country's name from Judea to Syria, Palestina. Well, of course, then the second exile. Remember, they had 70-year exile. Jeremiah had prophesied about it. And it was when they went into Babylonian captivity under Nebuchadnezzar and then the Medes and the Persians, right? Well, now they're going into a second exile, but it's going to be a lot longer than 70 years. After the, their banishment, this time from Jerusalem, Jews were scattered throughout the world. And for almost the next 2,000 years, the Jewish people were sifted among the nations. But amazingly, they retained their distinct identity. At times, the Jewish people were able to blend into nations where they lived into a, joint, a, a, a period of relative peace. However, the, the, the specter of persecution was never far away. The, the Roman Catholic Church labeled Jews as Christ killers. And now this is history. And therefore, persecution against them was justified, if not encouraged. Among the greatest of these persecutions was the famous um, edict that launched the Spanish Inquisition in 1492. Jews were given four months to leave Spain or to convert to Roman Catholicism by King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella. Between 200 and 400,000 Jews did leave. They lost everything, but they had their life, right? Around 50,000 converted to Catholicism in order to save their lives. Several thousand Jews were tortured and put to death by the Roman church during that period. Check your history. It's all there. Then came the worst persecution of all, and that was Hitler's horrible Holocaust. Before the guns of World War II fell silent, six million Jews had been marched to their deaths in the concentration camps of Nazi Germany. Well, that's when, after that, is when the Third Temple era began. After World War II, the guilt of 
standing by while six million Jews died, moved the nations of the world to vote for the creation of a Jewish state in the land called Palestine, formerly the Holy Land, right? And the United Nations took their famous vote on, what, November 29, 1947, to partition that area called Palestine into a Jewish state and an Arab state. The Jews quickly accepted the UN partition, um, even though the territory allotted to the Jewish state was much smaller than the originally promised that in even in the 1917 Balfour Declaration. The Arabs rejected the UN partition plan and they vowed to wage war against the Jewish state until they had driven the Jews into the sea. Violence in the Holy Land broke out almost immediately after the United Nations adoption of the partition plan. Jamal Husseini, the, the Arab um, higher committee spokesman, he told the UN prior to the partition vote that the Arabs would drench the soil of our beloved country with the last, with the, the last drop of our blood. So we're not going to allow this to happen. Well, of course, this unofficial war continued against the Jews until the official declaration of independence uh, by Israel. And the area called Palestine had been under the authority of the British mandate from the time of World War I. However, the British decided to wash their hands of this troubled region and they announced that the last British troops would pull out of the Palestinian region on May 14, 1948. And this left the area without any authority in charge. So Israel did the only thing that they could do. It declared its independence on that same night. And the Arabs launched war against Israel the very next day, just what they said they would do. Five Arab, five Arab armies, um, Egypt, Syria, Transjordan, Lebanon, and Iraq, Im- immediately invaded Israel. And when a ceasefire was finally declared in 1949, Jordan occupied the area of Judea, Samaria, the West Bank, and they also controlled the eastern part of Jerusalem, including the Temple Mount. Israel controlled the western part of Jerusalem. Well, it was like that for 19 years. And then come 1967. We had the Six Days War in 1967. Israel had defeated Syria in the north, Jordan in the east, Egypt in the south, and most importantly, they had conquered Jerusalem, driven Jordan across the, back to where the, the current borders are, across the Jordan Valley, and they were reunified, and the Temple Mount was in Israeli hands for the first time since the Romans drove them out in 70 AD. Many in Israel believed Israel's time of redemption had indeed come, right? And hey, could the Messiah be far behind? But after the breathtaking victory of the Six Days War, Israel possessed much of the territory described in the Bibles, uh, in the Bible as Israel's promised land. Much of the world expected Israel to annex the land move the two Muslim shrines from the Temple Mount and build Israel's long-dreamed-of third temple. But that's not what they did. Israel's secular rulers 
had far different ideas. They feared men more than they feared God. And furthermore, the last thing they wanted was a surging Jewish revival that would inevitably result uh, if the temple were built on the Temple Mount, right? And to the world's amazement, Israel invited the Muslim Waqf, W-A-Q-F, to return to the Temple Mount as the custodian of the Al-Aqsa Mosque and the Dome of the Rock. Now, I, I, I wasn't... Um, I was just being born. I was born in August of 68. All this happened right after the Six Days War. So I was just being born and when all this was craziness was going on. Most Jewish rabbis, they told the Jewish people that they should not even visit the Temple Mount lest they inadvertently stand in the Holy of Holies up there somewhere. Which was for, and they forbid them to do so. It was forbidden to them to do so. So as a result, the Jewish people largely forsook the place where God had said that he would place his name there forever. And that's why the big fight between him and Satan, right? God said, I will place my name there. And Satan said, well, if you want your name there, that's where I want my name. And there's been a fight on ever since for it. And I'm telling you, I know who wins the last fight for it. And I want to be on his side. When Jesus Christ comes back, plants his feet on the Mount of Olives, there's nothing Satan can do. So, while uh, back to the geopolitical situation, that while Israel's politicians, they curried favor with the United States and the United Nations, there were those in Israel who knew what Israel ought to do. So, Israel Ariel, he was among the soldiers that captured the Temple Mount from the Arabs in 67, and from that day forward, he dreamed of a someday building Israel's third temple on the Temple Mount. Well, in 1987, Rabbi Ariel founded an organization called the Temple Institute. Every time we go to Israel, we take our tour group there. You've got to go. Don't go to Israel unless your guide takes you to the Temple Institute. And its purpose from the beginning was to prepare for the building of Israel's third temple. One by one, the vessels and the utensils required for temple worship were recreated. And in everything, the institute attempted to follow the instructions given in the Torah. And progress was slow, but Ariel and others who had joined him, they trudged on. By 2012, most of the furniture and the utensils of the temple had been recreated. You can see them when you go there today. It's in the Jewish quarter. The one piece of furniture that was missing from the Temple Institute was the Ark of the Covenant. And it was hoped that the original, remember I told you about the tabernacle plan early on. The, um, the brazen altar, the laver, the uh, candelabra, altar of incense, table of shoebread. They've got all that. And it was, it was hoped originally that the original Ark would be found. However... It had not been seen since the destruction of the first temple by Nebuchadnezzar in 586 B.C. So finally, the decision was made. A new new Ark of the Covenant was made. It's not the original. I've seen the new one because they don't know where the old one was. But a new Ark of the Covenant, they knew that it should be built for use until the original Ark 
could be found. And in the spring of 2013, the new Ark of the Covenant was placed in the Temple Institute alongside the rest of the temple furnishings. And it was at that time that the Institute announced the architectural drawings for the construction of Israel's third temple that they were completed. And everything was ready for Israel to build her third temple after nearly 2,000 years of exile. Now, what does the future hold? Well, the Bible says in Revelation 11, 1 and 2 that John was told to measure the temple, but don't measure the outer court because it's going to be trodden down of the Gentiles for 42 months. That final three and one half years prior to the second coming of Jesus Christ. So Israel, under a new peace agreement that's coming, is going to be allowed to build her third temple on the Temple Mount without destroying the Al-Aqsa Mosque and the Dome of the Rock. And under the new peace agreement, the status of Jerusalem is never going to be, they're never going to get an agreement on that. So they're going to put it off for seven years. At the end of the final seven-year period, the world governing armies are going to come into Israel to enforce resolutions like Resolution 2334 that says it's illegal for you to occupy this region here and the West Bank. And so the world governing armies are going to come down to enforce those types of resolutions. It's going to look like all of it, the, the battle is going to be engaged in the north, in the, the plain of Megiddo. It's going to come down the Jordan Valley, come right up into the Kidron Valley. That's where the Battle of Armageddon is going to culminate. And it's at that time when it looks like Israel is going to be defeated. She's going to be rocked back on her heels. That the Lord is going to come back in all of his might, plant his feet on the Mount of Olives. The armies of heaven, the saints will be with him. And he's going to set the record straight. He's going to pour out his wrath upon the armies that have come against Israel to battle. And that's when he is going, the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and his Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And that we begin the 1,000-year millennial reign. That's what's going on right now. That's your past, present, and future. And we're living through it as we speak, folks. We don't have very much time left. This has been End of the Age, brought to you by the faithful partners of End Time Ministries. If you're not currently a partner with End Time Ministries, or if you would like more information, we invite you to call us at 1-800-END-TIME. That's 1-800-363-8463, or visit us online at endtime.com.